Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue today our series in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Pick up our reading. We've skipped over the uh, angels appearing to the shepherds, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification, this is Mary and the baby, Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him, and after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Guide us now, Lord, through this text and change us through it, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. I think it's safe to say that any thinking Christian is going to have moments when you ask yourself, am I crazy? Am I crazy to believe what I believe? Am I crazy to be following this Jesus who's not even around? And just, you wrestle with that, you know, are we making this up to make ourselves feel better? And I love that the Gospel of Luke takes that question head on. Luke wants his friend, Theophilus, we saw last week, he wants his friend, Theophilus, to have what he calls certainty. 
assurance. He wants Theophilus to know that like the foundations of a house or like the roots of a great tree, this Jesus story, we call the gospel. This is what everything in the world is resting on. This is what's underneath it all, holding it all up. This is what is shaping and guiding because it's an active story. It hasn't finished. It's still going on. We have what we have written here, but this Jesus and the spirit that he sent, they're still moving in the world This is the foundation of the house of the world. (laughs) However much it may seem otherwise, this is the basis of everything. This is the real reality underneath everything. Luke wants Theophilus to know that. But as I was thinking about that this week, I think that we in the modern world have a unique problem here because our imagination of the world, beloved, as modern people, our imagination of the world has for a very long time really been kind of drained of God's presence and purposes. Think about that. Just the way the modern person imagines the world, our imagination, it's not that the world actually is drained of God's presence and purposes, but our imagination of it certainly is drained of it. I mean, you think about going all the way back to like the 17th century scientific revolution. We really look at the cosmos now, not as a theater of God's glory, not as something full of divine purpose and divine goodness. We look at the world as a mechanism. It's laws and forces and causes and matter and energy. Like enlightened people know this. And when you think about culture, like you look around at human culture, stuff you know, that humans are doing, what's it all about? It's about humans. Like, what in our human culture in the modern world is exalting God above us? It's about man and woman. It's about man being the measure of all things. That's what culture's about. And we've lived in this fantasy so long that even for those of us who really believe that God is and that God has a plan, it still instinctively feels like he's absent. Does that make sense? Like you and I know God is in this room today. Does it feel like he's in this room? Does anything in your life reinforce for you a like vibrant sense of the presence of God? Certainly not in the modern world. It feels like God is absent. It feels, and I use that word on purpose, it feels like God's, God is just not very relevant. Even if he's real, he's just not very relevant because we all understand as modern people that the real world is human activity. The real world is the stuff that people are doing every day. Like, that's where the real action is. You know, you can sit in here and do your Jesus thing on Sunday, but you're going to go back out this afternoon, and tomorrow morning, how real is all this going to feel? The real world is what people are doing. It's seeking self-fulfillment. It's fighting for justice. It's, you know, solving problems. It's paying bills. That's real life. And, you know, this very earthy imagination has even co-opted God himself because, you know, if there's a God, if there's a God, you know, we, we understand what that means. There's just some power up there who wants you to be happy and wants you to be nice, you know, and if believing in God, you know, brings fulfillment to you, then go for it. And in this modern imaginary, for me to say something like the scripture does, that the pillars of the earth belong to the Lord and on them he has set the, found, on them he has set the world, on those pillars, it just, it's nonsensical. Very hard to relate to. 
And what I hope to do today is just show you how this text, these two little stories about Jesus as a baby and then as a boy, how they offer guidance for Theophilus in his time and for us in the modern world, how they guide us when God feels absent, when his presence feels distant at best, his purposes seem very marginal to the real world, how does this text guide us? And I want to start with a, a seemingly minor geographic detail, and that is the temple. I want to talk just briefly about the promise of the temple. Is it significant that baby Jesus' first earthly journey, he's about 40 days old, about a month and a half old in this story as it opens, his first earthly journey is to this city called Jerusalem and to the temple in that city. Is that, is that, is that important? Is it significant that the only story we have of Jesus' boyhood is in the temple? Is it significant that so many old people, and I want you to notice they're old, so many old people in these early chapters of Luke's gospel either serve in the temple, or in Anna's case, she almost seems to live there. And it's like wherever they call home, for these characters early in Luke's gospel, the geographic center of their world is quite clearly this city, Jerusalem, and the temple in particular. And what is interesting is that that is going to carry throughout Luke's gospel. Because most of this gospel, now there are 24 chapters in Luke, most of the gospel is taken up with a very long journey of Jesus t toward Jerusalem. Look this up later. In chapter 9, verse 51, we are told that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Guess when he arrives? Chapter 19, verse 41. Now, I want you just to think about that. In the first 19 chapters of this gospel, 11 of them are one long journey toward Jerusalem. And then, of course, you know, the, the latter part of the gospel, I mean, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has a bunch of debates with people. He dies there. He is raised there. You know, after his resurrection, he meets people in and around Jerusalem. This is a very prominent city in this gospel. And the only way to make sense of why so much about Jerusalem and the temple is to recall the promise that is tied to this city and temple. So let me ask you guys this question to sort of orient us a bit. What was the first temple in the Bible? What was the very first temple? Somebody, anybody? Say again? The tent of meeting is one answer, and somebody else said Eden. The Eden people have it. It was Eden. It was the garden. The garden was a temple. It's very interesting to notice that when God created human beings and he put them in that garden, he, he gave human beings what we call dominion or rule, but he did not just give them dominion. He gave them dominion in communion with him. That's really important. He didn't just make people rulers. He, he made us rulers who rule in communion with him. That's what the temple was about. And God intended that, that that temple, that garden, where human beings were working the ground and keeping it and guarding it and making it a just glorious place to, to honor God, God intended, it seems, you know, he had these four rivers running out of Eden to the ends of the earth. And it seems, uh, G.K. Beale points us out, that from that hillock of Eden with its temple, its garden temple, God wanted the life of Eden to expand to the ends of the earth until in time the whole world would be this holy city just teeming with temple life, a whole world full of people working and keeping the earth in fellowship with God. Well, what happened? But sin. And you know the story well. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. They're thrown out of the temple. They're expelled. They lost their communion with God. They lost their dominion. Now, what is interesting as the story unfolds is that after that fall, 
the fellowship between God and man is not restored in a temple. It's restored at altars where animals are sacrificed. And now sacrifice becomes central to fellowship between God and man. The curse of death that God pronounced on Adam and Eve, it falls on this substitute animal so that now this animal having died under God's curse, man and woman can sit in fellowship with God. And in time, now the tabernacle people get it, in time, eventually under Moses, a tabernacle, a moving temple, is built around a whole system of animal sacrifices. So the heart of the tabernacle that Moses builds is sacrifice. But now we've got an actual temple, a moving temple, a mobile temple built around it. And the idea here is that God moves off of Sinai and comes down and lives, and God and Israel can live together now. And we're, we're, we're looking now towards the land of Canaan, where Israel will eventually take dominion. But that dominion in Canaan will once again be in communion with God. That's very important. And then as history moves on, there's another very big development, isn't there? I said to you last time, Luke, obviously, as he opens his gospel, wants us to remember the birth of that little guy, Samuel, the kingmaker. Samuel's mother, Hannah, sings a song in 1 Samuel 2 that is almost identical in its themes to what Mary sings when she finds out she's going to give birth to Jesus. There's clearly a connection between these stories. And Samuel, as the kingmaker, inaugurates the kingship, first Saul, then David, then Solomon, you know, you know something about those kings. And I don't think it's too strong to say, up till now we've had this mobile tent, this mobile temple. I don't think it's too strong to say that the very purpose of Israel's kingship was to build a temple. I don't think that's a stretch. Because if you think about the stories of David and then Solomon, his fantastically wealthy and wise and glorious son, the climax of that whole narrative after Israel's enemies have been subdued. We've established a royal city called Jerusalem. Uh, the temple, the, the tabernacle has been, or rather the, the ark of God's presence has been moved into Jerusalem. David sets up a bunch of Levite orders to kind of serve in the eventual temple that's going to be built, and there's a bunch of supplies gathered, but the climax of it is the building of the temple, not a movable temple now, a real established permanent temple. And you have the king, and you have the temple, and the city, and it looks like Eden is restored. Man, I mean, they're just places in early kings, and you're reading about Solomon's reign, and you're like, it looks like Eden is back. But sin, you know, but sin. David sins, Solomon sins, the other kings after them sin, and judgment falls. And even before the glory of God leaves Solomon's temple for the last time, And the Chaldeans come in and turn that temple and turn that city of Jerusalem into rubble. And the final son of David is dethroned. Even before that happens, the prophets foretell a coming age in the future in which Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and the temple is going to be rebuilt. And Messiah, David's son, the true king, is going to come And God's glory, which left the temple, left the land, God's glory is going to come back to that city and that temple. And the promise of the temple is God's glory will dwell with us again, and it will fill the earth. That's the promise of the temple. God's glory will dwell with us again, and it will fill the earth. Listen to these words of the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Later in chapter 60, arise, speaking to Jerusalem, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's the promise of the temple. Now that brings us to a second thing I want to talk about. So that's the promise of the temple. But secondly, I want you to notice in this text the challenge of waiting. The promise of the temple, but now the challenge of waiting. Because now we are opening this text, and it's about 700 years after Isaiah wrote that. Now just let that sink in. We're talking about almost three-quarters of a millennium. It's been 400 years since the last prophet of God spoke. You guys know what happened 400 years ago? This has been a while. And, you know, for us in our kind of fast-paced modern world, 400 years, 700 years, just feels like, I mean, were there even people back then? Um, You know, do you suppose by the time we are picking up with Simeon and Anna in the temple, do you suppose God felt absent? You haven't heard from him for 400 years. Those crazy promises of those, you know, guys back in the days of the prophets, I mean, they're 700 years old. There's no king in Jerusalem. The Romans rule. There's no glory of God in the temple. God just must have not felt particularly real, particularly relevant. I mean, what was really going on in Jerusalem was, you know, the stuff, you know, Herod, Pilate, Caesar, you know. The challenge of waiting, and that's why we need to pay very close attention to these wonderful old people. Where do we find Simeon and Anna? For that matter, where did we find Zechariah and Elizabeth? Back in chapter 1, where do we even, for that matter, find these younger people, Joseph and Mary? Why, they're in the temple. What are they doing? They're fasting. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're offering according to the law of Moses. They're faithfully doing what God said to do in the temple. They know that however much it does not feel like it, the Lord is here. Don't miss that little phrase, the end of chapter, verse 22. Did you see it? They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Doesn't feel like it. But the God of Israel is here. The God of all the earth, he's here. They're presenting baby Jesus to the Lord. And the promises of that God, yea, 700 years old, those promises have not failed. And I just love that Simeon and Anna are old. And that they have grown old waiting. I just, I, I love, I love this. In verse 25, there's this old man, Simeon, righteous and devout. He's grown old waiting for the consolation of Israel. When Anna has seen the baby, she runs out into the streets of Jerusalem, starts talking to everybody in Jerusalem who are what? Verse 30, uh, verse 
I can't see anymore, I'm getting old, <laughs> 38. She began to speak of this baby to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They're still waiting, and these people have grown old, waiting on the Lord. Simeon and Anna are the latest generation of faithful, waiting Israel, and it has been a very long wait. They've grown old, but no one who waits for God will ever be confounded. Can I say something to you, beloved? Our modern imaginary of the good life has no room for this. But if you spend your whole entire existence in this world waiting for God and then die, you have lived a good life. No one who waits for God will be confounded. No one who waits for God will lose. Even if you wait until your death and you must wait now till the resurrection, you will not be disappointed. And they are waiting. You know, I was, I was thinking as I thought about this, I thought about, again, this imagined world of our modern time, drained of God's presence and purposes because we're just so full of what we're doing. You know, that imagined world actually only works for juveniles, if you think about it. I'm not referring to any of you young people here. You guys at Trinity, you're better than this. But if you think about the typical juvenile mentality, juveniles can fantasize that they have unlimited time. And they have unlimited ability. It's a fantasy, but you can still fantasize about that when you're a juvenile. But if you're a person in a world where you don't, God is not real or he, at least he's not relevant, then you realize something. Aging in that imagined world is a real problem, isn't it? Because you've only got so much time you start to discover. And you start to go on in life, start to realize some of those things you thought you would have and thought you'd accomplish and all that good life you, you know, find yourself shooting for. This life is all you have if there's no God. If God is not real and God does not have purposes that you're a part of, then this little life you have, assuming it's not cut short by some tragedy, this is it. And the sand is falling through the hourglass. You better get a move on. And if you start aging out and you haven't got there that you plan to get to, what do you do with that? I mean, if in a world where there's no God, waiting is death. Every day you wait is a day you have died. Because this life is it. That's, I wonder if that's why we have so much psychological mental health stuff going on in our world when we have so much wealth and comfort and pleasure and yet we're just miserable because in the real world, not that imagined world that we moderns find ourselves inhabiting, but in the real world where God is and he has a plan, every day in that real world is just another experience of life in God's presence and in the unfolding of God's purposes. If you have to wait without God, it'll produce bitterness. If you're waiting with God, it'll produce faithfulness. And it'll produce something else you see with Simeon and Anna. It produces a certain vision, a certain ability to see. Because Simeon and Anna have walked in the Holy Spirit. They have walked in the presence of God. They have waited for the purposes of God for so long, they are able to immediately recognize what nobody else in that temple that day seems to recognize, and that is God is here in human flesh. The Messiah is here in this little baby. They can see it because they've waited for God. Because they've waited in faith, and they have faithfully obeyed as they have waited. Their hearts are prepared, and when God appears, 
when the Messiah arrives, they are able to see it and perceive it and participate in it because now they realize the wait is over. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared. Release me, Lord. I can die in peace. You know, a lot of others before Simeon and Anna died in faith without seeing. And their waiting faith is chronicled as an example for us. You might remember that right before the writer of Hebrews gives us chapter 11, that famous hall of the people of faith in the Old Testament, this is what he says. To people in Theophilus' time, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen? That's the challenge of waiting. One reason that God feels absent is because he does not share our timetables. It is said in 2 Peter chapter 3, there will come scoffers in the last days who say everything's going on like it has in the beginning. What's the big deal? They don't realize that the day with God is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is not on human timetables. That's why he sometimes feels absent because he does not act in the time that we expect him to. And the question for the faithful is, are we willing to wait for him in our personal affairs where so much needs God's working? Can you wait for him? We're told those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be exhausted. They will walk and not faint. Can you wait for him? And in the big affairs of peoples and nations, why do the heathen rage? The peoples imagine all these vain things. Kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord. God just laughs. He's not on our timetables. That's the challenge of waiting. But there's one other thing I want to mention before I close, and that is there's also here a question of welcome. So there's the promise of the temple, the challenge of waiting, Simeon and Anna. But in the second story, there is a question of welcome. This is a little bit sobering. Because Simeon's first oracle about, you know, the salvation, it's obviously full of light and joy. In his second oracle... Beginning in verse 34, you'll notice a shadow falls, and there is just the barest rumble of a distant storm. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign who will be opposed. If this child, as Simeon and Anna so clearly see, is God's glory returning now to his people Israel, there actually is a question here, beloved. Please listen. Because we need to hear this too. There is a question whether as God's glory comes back, it will be received. Will it be received? There's kind of an ominous hint in this second oracle that God's long-awaited salvation may not bring a rising to life for all Israel. Not all will be as enthused about his coming as Simeon and Anna. And 12 years later, By now, we presume that Simeon and Anna have gone to the reward. Twelve years later, there's the first foreshock of what Simeon prophesied. This is the first time that this child really creates a stir in the Jerusalem temple. He hangs back. You know, you see he's talking with the teachers there. And what is the response? We're told in verse 47, they are amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, amazement is a double-edged sword. Sometimes people are amazed, and they like it. Sometimes people are amazed, and they don't like it at all. And we're just not sure 
wow, this young lad is impressive. He seems to know more than we do (laughs) at points. And it's not clear whether this might create some real issues. But the real shock are the utterly calm words that Jesus utters when his mother asks him what he's doing, like a good mom. These are the first recorded words of Jesus. And they just, they just hang in the air after he goes back to Nazareth with his parents. We are told that Mary treasures these words in her heart. These are his words that echo in his mother's soul. And if I were to literally tra- translate the Greek, it would be, Mother, didn't you know that it is necessary for me to be in my father's things? Didn't you realize it's necessary for me to be in my father's things? Now, I just want you to let that sort of like sink in for a minute. This temple, the Herodian temple was massive. This temple and its things, its affairs, they belong to the living God. And this lad calls that God my father. This is my father's house. These are my father's things. Didn't you know it's necessary for me to be in my father's things? If all of this belongs to the father, guess who it also belongs to? Belongs to the son. In a very, very subtle way, the boy Jesus is saying, I'm Lord and heir of this temple and all that God will do here. And the problem is that though it will not emerge for some years yet, there are Israelites in high places who have really forgotten they are the tenants here. And there's a landlord. And the landlord's son has just walked into the temple. Can I be very honest and ask you to be very honest with your own heart for a second, beloved? Sometimes the reason God feels absent is because he doesn't share our timetables. There's another reason why God sometimes feels absent. Sometimes God feels absent because it is honestly more comfortable when he is. We get used to the feeling that God is not really right here acting relevant Lord. We get used to kind of God being absent. And it would actually be unsettling to us if he were not absent. Can I ask you something? Do you really, really, really want a living, present, purposeful, active Lord? Do you really want that? I'd like to stand up here and tell you, yeah, oh, I'm down. I'm not always. If the landlord appears and he wants an accounting, are we really ready to welcome him and all that he brings? You know, the truth is, Jesus Christ is working right now in some of your lives in ways you don't like, you don't understand. Yes? He's right now acting as Lord in your life in ways you don't like. You don't understand. It frustrates you. Me too. And there's a question that will hang through this gospel. Are we comfortable? North American? Got it together? Modern? People of God? 
It's just a question that hangs in the air. Are we really ready to receive Jesus on his terms, not ours? Well, whether the issue before us is the waiting challenge or the welcome question, Jesus and Mary together show us the way forward because you'll notice Jesus does what every 12-year-old boy should do when his mother says, time to go home. He obeys. He submits. And, she, and Mary goes home just treasuring all this. She can't understand it. She's just, just thinking about it. And I think that's the way forward. Following Jesus, whatever it is God has put before us, here's two things you can always do, and it's always the right thing to do. Number one, just submit to your Father's revealed will, his revealed will. God has a lot of secret will that I would love him to show me, but that, he may or may not. But there are certain things I know. God is, this is clearly God is, this is, I, this is, you know, it's in the Bible. Do this. Then do that. Go home with Mom. Be submissive, boy Jesus, and he does. Just do what God has clearly revealed you ought to do. Do your duty. Trust in the Lord. And like Mary, while you're doing that, just treasure, ponder, meditate on the word of your Lord, the crazy things he does and has done and has promised to do. Just meditate on those things. And if you're obeying God and the things he's revealed and you are just treasuring, pondering, meditating on the word and the works of the Lord in your heart, then you will find that whatever else comes, you are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and you will preserve your souls. More next time. But for now, Father, work in our hearts by the Spirit to give us a waiting faith and a welcoming love. In Jesus we pray. Amen.